This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Welcome everybody, welcome all our Torah Anytime viewers. Uh, just a reminder, first of all, tonight's class we are learning Le'ilu Nishmat to Yisrael Levin and Elisheva Kaplan, the couple that um, passed away, uh, in, what was it, about a few days, uh, almost a week ago now. Uh, so Yisrael Ben Yeshaya Halevi and Elisheva Basya Bas Yechiel Ephraim. Also, everybody's welcome to join us on our Thursday night women's only class at 1601 Quentin Road, the BJX. Um, I guess we're usually on almost every Thursday, but you can always email me uh, for further information. Okay, so let us begin. So we are continuing on our series where we spoke about, so, uh, you know, being that we sort of interrupted with, with Pesach, uh, with the class about Pesach, but prior to that class, we gave a whole series of discussion about proving God, proving that there is a creator in the world. So thus far, bless you, thus far, whatever language you want, um, thus far we have proved we have proved the following. We have proved that there, number one, there is a God. Number two, we proved that God is actively running the world. And number three, which we didn't prove yet, is which we're going to speak about later, if there is a God, and if God is actively running the world, there must be a purpose for this world. Anything that it gets created, there is a purpose for it. No matter how silly, how infinitely useless it might seem, there is a reason for that creation. It might just be a hobby, but nevertheless, there is a reason. So if there is a reason for the creation, then we need to know what it is. Think about it, and, and this is really where religion comes into play. Religion uh, comes into play. We also actually proved the need, to relig- the need for religion in the class we gave about moral relativism. So we have to, we have to figure out now that the, the, if there is a need for religion and there is, must be a religion, now which religion do you, do you, are you going to go for? There are so many religions out there. The reason why religion is so imperative in, in understanding the purpose is you think of religion as an instruction manual. Imagine you go and you purchase a, I don't know if this is for consumer purchase yet, but they've been making these cars that also can turn into airplanes. I don't know if you've seen that. Um, you're not talking about like 747 Boeings, you know, you're talking about a little car that, you know, it has like wings somewhere and it just like flaps out and then it turns into an airplane. Now imagine you go and you invest and you buy one of these. Are you going to be like, all right, whatever, I'll figure it out. You know, I'll drive and I'll figure out how to turn it into the, you know, to the spaceship and then I'll fly into outer space. You know, you'll, you'll take flight courses, you have to learn all the laws, you have to learn all the aviation rules, you have to learn all these things, and you're going to go and you're going to study about it. The more intricate and complicated something is, the more that you have to study the instruction manual. What could be more complicated than this universe, this world? This, this world is so magnificent, there's so many components that come into play over here, and now you're over here, now what is the purpose? And that's really where religion comes in and say, hey, this is what your purpose is. The problem is, there are a lot of religions out there. In fact, there are roughly about 4,200 religions. So, how are we going to know and figure out which one is the, the correct religions? So, we'll, we'll go on, I guess, maybe, maybe we should just do all 4,200 of them. No, we shouldn't. All right. <laughs> so we'll go through the main ones, and once you learn the process, you'll be able to eliminate almost every single one through that uh, through the process that I will Hashem show you. The uh, you know besides having forty two hundred religions, Christianity alone has forty thousand denominations. Which means is that just shows you how many every religion has subcategories. Uh, for example, Buddhism, which we're going to speak about today, there is you know there's there's three denominations and there's also variations uh, for that as well. The okay, the question that is asked is is now to, if you ask somebody what is the right religion, what are they going to say? The one that I follow. So you know it's kind of. I guess pretty lucky for you that all of the religion, all of the cults, all of everything that's possible, you just got luckily placed into the right one. And in fact, you know, one of the big reasons why people follow religions, well, one of the big, one of the biggest reasons is that's what your parents told you. Whatever your parents follow, that's what you follow. And me, people don't really put two and two together and be like, well, is this the right thing that I should do? Maybe there's something else. Another big reason is what they say in the real estate world, location, location, location. Everything is about location. You grew up in a place that let's say was more Christian based, so you're going to be a Christian, assuming that your parents are you know open and they're not really a particular anything. Uh, you you grew in a place in the Far East and they practice Hinduism, you're a Hindu, and that's basically how things uh, things roll. So faith cannot be just an accident of geography, like just where I happen to get placed. All right, and if I got right, then I got lucky, and if I got one of the four thousand one hundred ninety nine that was wrong, well then you know you know kind of sucks for that person. So the and in fact, many religions, and many, in fact, if not most, believe that if you don't follow their religion, you're not going to heaven. 
That's like enormous consequences. It's not like, well, I was a good person, I tried my best, all right, and I, got, I messed up the wrong religion. Let's use Christianity, for example. Christians believe that you can be the best person, the biggest charity giver. You, like, like, literally, I don't know, uh, what's the guy's name who was, like, really good, uh, everything, I don't know, was it Gandhi? I don't know, Mother Teresa? Someone, like, really crazy, right? If they don't believe in Jesus, that's it, you're done. Like, I don't care if you just supported the entire poor population. If you don't believe in JC, you don't have anything, that's it, you're done. So there's the, the fact of just being a good person is not so relevant over here, especially when you're looking at all these different religions and different cults, that if you don't believe theirs, you're done, you're finished. So we're, we're dealing with something that has a tremendous, tremendous, tremendous amount of consequences. Also, the um, if not all, the majority of religions contradict each other. So you can't, you can't, also you can't be like, okay, I'll do like Islam on Tuesday or Fridays, I'll do Judaism on Shabbos, and I'll do um, Christianity on Sunday, and then throughout the week we'll touch it, you know, just to be safe, you know, so I'll just try to capture all of them. It doesn't work that way. All, almost all religions contradict each other. Even look at one aspect. You look at, for example, JC. So Jesus, uh, according to Christianity, he was the son of God, God, depending on who you're dealing with, and, uh, a, you know, a prophet, you know, all the, all the goodies. You go to Islam, he was a prophet, that's as far as. You go to Judaism, he wasn't son of God, he wasn't a prophet, he wasn't, he was nothing. And you go to other, you know, other religions, they, they don't even acknowledge, uh, you know, his fact. So, you look at, for example, another example, you look at the creation. Judaism. Islam, Christianity, what we call, you could call the Abrahamic uh, religions, they all believe that there was a creation. Hinduism, for example, does not believe that there was a creation. The world was constantly evolving. Um, so, and you could deal with Buddhism. Buddhism denies that the fact that there is a, even is there a creator. So, the, the, the question that lies is that not only is this an imperative research that needs to be done, but also the consequences are enormous. The, you could ask, how come God didn't just make it obvious? Like, why do we have to have so many religions and cultures? Make one very obvious, and we'll do it, and we'll finish it. Why do we have to, there's so many different different ones, and they're so similar to one another. And for, the answer, first of all, is that one does stick out. If you do the research, one sticks out as very, very obvious. But you have to do a little bit of research. But then you could ask, then, the fact of just having a God, why doesn't it, just let, let it be obvious, let it be known, like day and night, let it be known obvious that there is a God. Uh, the answer is given uh, based off Shir al-Shirim. In Shir al-Shirim, uh, the, you know, Shlomo Amalek goes and compares us to a, the relationship between us and God is between like a, a khatan and kala, like a husband and a wife. In order to be in a relationship, you have to, it's, it has to be something that you're will, you know, on your own fruition, you wanted to be in that relationship. You can't be forced in a relationship. Some Islamic, you know, countries beg to differ on those type of relationships, but in general, a good, healthy relationship you, the, the spouse, each spouse says, I want to be in this relationship, and it's a, it's a, it's coming from your own free will, from your own intuition. If God would have presented himself as so obvious, like day and night, even though it is so obvious, but you have to look, you have to just look a little bit in order to see it, but if it had been so obvious for everybody, like day and night, then there would be no free will. What would be free will? Now, of course, we have to do whatever God says, you know, it's over there, like every time you do something wrong, you zap with lightning, everybody's gonna listen, there's not gonna be any more free will. If there's not gonna be any more free will, then we're just like robots. And if we're just like robots, then what is the purpose of, of everything? Which also leads us to a point of, you know, you can't plead ignorance. Be like, well, I didn't know. You're not agnostic. Agnostic is like, well, you know, I don't know if God exists. I don't know if there's a religion. I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. So I just do nothing. The problem with that is, is that an agnostic, um, or anybody for that matter, that your, your action speaks a lot louder than words. You could claim that you're an agnostic, you know, and you're not sure. But, and I've had these conversations with like, you know, Jewish people where they're like, well, I don't know, uh, you know, is the Torah real? So, I, my response to them, I'm like, if you don't know, wouldn't it be better to go on the safe side and just do it just in case until you find out the information? Like an agnostic cannot say, well, I just didn't know. You're, if you're not doing anything, if you're not actively practicing whatever religion is that you're, that you're an agnostic to or for all of them, uh, then you're showing that you don't believe. If you would believe, you would do it. So it's very, very obvious based on your actions on whether you believe or whether you do not. The, you can could, you could understand it like this. If somebody um, comes over to you and says, hey, listen, don't go into that restaurant. It has food poisoning. You can be sick for a week. Assuming you don't want to lose weight and that's not your weight, you know, loss, you know, diet. So you go and you're like, really? But then you see a sign, 50% off everything on the menu. So you're thinking back and forth and you go and you eat in the restaurant. 
and they're going to be like, well, I just told you, well, I'm an agnostic to whatever you just said. I'm like, obviously you're not, because you're, you're, you didn't listen, because you're eating. You can't plead ignorance if you're doing it. Your action speaks a lot louder than your, than your words. Okay. So now we have to figure out, how are we going to prove a religion? How do you prove a religion? The, the first thing is that you have to go inside of this, not necessarily only with an open mind. You have to be also open to understanding the, the truth. You have to actually be searching for the truth. And I'll give you an example um, of, let's say, for, we could call it an immature argument. Say somebody comes over to you and says, uh, how do you know that your parents are your parents? And you'll be like, well, you know, I have pictures, I guess. That's proof. You know, I have pictures here that uh, these are my parents. I'd be like... Photoshop. I'd be like, well, you know, I, I, I remember when I was there, you know, in that picture, so it can't be Photoshop. Be like, okay, fine, so you got adopted. And you got adopted really young. So then they go and they be like, well, I happened to just get a DNA test. And in the DNA test, it says that these are my parents. And be like, you paid off the DNA. You know, the, the, you know, the, the whole system. So if you argue like that, you can never, you can never win. It's like, there's nothing to say. It's like, imagine somebody else comes over to you and says, what is your name? You know, and you say your name is, yeah, whatever it is your name. And he says, can you prove it? And be like, yeah, I have, you know, birth certificate, I have a passport, I have a social security card, all forgeries. What else do you want me to do? I, you know, tattooed on my forehead? Like, where else, how else can I prove to you? If somebody goes and completely, like, is not interested, it's like an immature argument. The idea is, uh, when usually where I call this, where I call out this immature argument is when I'm arguing with an atheist. So if I'm arguing with an atheist, and I go back and forth, and the science, science, so finally we get to a point where science doesn't have an answer, at least not a logical answer, and that is where the first atom came into being. Where did the first part of creation, if you're saying the Big Bang, we spoke about this in the Big Bang, we don't have to go back into it, but if there was everything was expanding who created somebody had to create something had to create the first element the first atom the first the first piece of matter and they say listen this is the response we don't know yet it's like if they're reading directly from the website we don't we don't know yet i'm like you represent the scientific community that's nice to know um so we don't know yet but maybe science tomorrow will figure it out i'm like that's not a that's not an image that's an immature argument you're not being logical if i'm giving you all proofs and you're just saying, well, we don't know. Maybe, maybe I could refute you tomorrow. So I, you know, I'm not going to listen to you. So you're not really searching. So when we're searching, we have to be searching uh, for the truth. Okay. So now we're going to go through a few steps on how to prove that uh, a religion is credible. And you know, how can you validate a religion if we may? Number one is, do we have reason to believe that this was a God-given religion? We have no interest in a man-made religion. That, that does nothing to us. Think of it this way. If you want to relate to God... You relate to him on his terms, not on your terms. You don't decide what is right, what is wrong. Everything has to be from God-given. If there's a man-made religion, it, it, whatever, we, we have no interest in that. Usually, most religions, they start with a story. They have a story of either one or a few people interact with the divine, they get a message, and uh, that, is, that is enough to pass this category. Fine, so you have a message. You know, God came to you while you were hiking. You know, you know, spirit came on to you and says, you know, I have some stuff for you. By all means, you know, that, that classifies it. You had a divine interaction. Whether it's true or false, we'll deal with it later, but there was a divine interaction. If you have no divine interaction in your religion, then we, we, we're stopping right there. There's nothing to talk about. This is obviously not a God-given religion, and I'm not interested in following a philosophy or a cult. Number two. Number two is, if it was a God-given religion, is it easily made up? Like, how do I know that it was really God-given? Maybe... You told me that it was God-given, and there's no proof to it. You just, like, made it up. So can, can we go and easily disprove it based on, on you know, there's no, there's no evidence for it? You know, you could also think, you could also branch this off like a beautiful philosophy does not mean that it's true. And you look at, for example, did I bring these pictures in? Oh, I don't know if I brought it. I may have not. Oh, no, I didn't. I have to show this to you. I had, um, maybe I'll bring it next week. I had, uh, you know, many people see miracles. Give me an example. You know, there was, um, uh, what was that? You know, many people, they go into like these near-death experiences and they come out and they come out and they're like, you know, how, you know, what did you see on the other side? And be like, well, you know, I saw Jesus and he came over to me and he gave me a big hug and, you know, and, and he said, you know, Mary, I want you to go down there and spread my word. And I don't know how many accents I got in there. It was supposed to be Western. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, you, you, they go in there and be like, so, you know, you ask most people, like, how do you know how uh, Jesus looks like? You know, he had a beard, he had long hair, you know, he was doing this. You know, like, it, it, what was, like, how do you, you, we don't know. In fact, nobody knows that that's how he looked like. 
Not only no one knows how, I don't know how they got that picture. I really don't. I really have to look into that. Why, how they got the picture, the long-haired hippie, you know, uh, type, of, uh, type of look. Because when you think about it, nobody that even read his books, what, read, wrote, wrote the Gospels, all the, the New Testament, was not even in his lifetime. So there was an artist that took it, you know, maybe the last, the last Supper. I don't know. Uh, you know, I don't know how exactly that, that all uh, went. But in any case, they claim that they see these things. So maybe that's a reason. There's, you know, people come back and they say, "Well, I spoke to God, and God told me this is the right religion, and God told me this is the right religion." There are. Um, so what I wanted to show you is I had pictures um, that in there it's like pictures from like food where they see JC inside, or there's like ice cream that there's a picture of a face, and they're like, "Well, obviously this is JC." There's like an orange where like it looks like someone's doing this. So that's JC. So, like, people generally see what they want to see, and they believe what they want to believe. How do we know that that is true? So, uh, and to branch us off in a little bit of a different angle, there are religions that claim to themselves as a noble upbringing, a a very, very um, beautiful way of life. That doesn't constitute a truth. Example of this would be Confucianism or Taoism, one of the, you know, the Chinese religions. That doesn't mean it's true. Just because it's nice, it doesn't mean it's true. Hinduism and Buddhism, for example, they'll say, well, you try by our experience, you'll go through our religion, you'll be like a better person, better person. You go through our meditation exercises, you go through all this, you'll meditate in a tree for six years, you'll be just so relaxed. Of course, you know, if you're sitting in a tree and you have nothing to do, you're either A, gonna go crazy, or you're gonna be pretty relaxed. Especially if there's some things growing around the trees that you could, you know, use. So, the, the idea is, number two, is, bottom line, if it was God-given, is it easily made up? Like, how do I know that it's a solid source? If it was one person that came and be like, hey, listen, I spoke to God and God told me everybody has to have this cup and hold it the whole day. I, well, yeah, okay, you know, here's a dollar and keep on walking. You know, so, the... The idea is, can it be made up? If you, if there's like 7,000 people and be like, hey listen, we were all hiking together at a mountain, and then, alright, then that's a pretty, that's a pretty, and like a divine being came, I'm like, alright, I gotta listen to that. That's, that sounds pretty interesting. Let's move on to number three. Number three is, if it was God given, how do we know that it's current? Maybe, like the Christians say, you know, that one was revoked, a new one was put into place. Part two. Maybe. The Rabbi David Godley brings another uh, two different points, um, and his points are more evidence-based. How, you know, to, he called, number one is called selective evidence. What does it mean by selective evidence? There is, I'll give you an example. Maybe it's easier to understand by example. The, the Islam claims that the proof of their religion is that Muslim had a very, very rapid conquest of Arabia and uh, North Africa. They were able to conquer a lot, a lot of land in a short period of time. So they'll say this is obvious proof that our religion is correct. Somebody might argue, no, you are just good warriors, and that's why it's proof. So, like, which one would be more, you know, when you're being selective, when I said this to the guys, I was like, you know, there is a gender that has selective hearing. So they said the woman, I'm sure you're going to say the men, right, selective hearing, whatever it is, you know, where you hear what you want to hear, you see what you want to see. So when you're giving me evidence, is it selective based on what you're presenting it? Like, I have just an easy, and in fact, a more logical explanation that disproves that. Another example is, is Christianity. Christianity says, you know how we know that this is a true religion? Look how far it's spread to the entire world. Number one religion in population. Not in nothing else, but population. So it goes, it's so great, must be that it's the right religion. I don't think so. Polytheism was very, very, the whole, almost the whole world was, was worshipping idol. Does that mean that it was correct? So, there are many other differences of, of explanations. So, when you're giving me evidence, I want to know that this is the best, most probable answer to that, to, that, uh, to that problem. That is number four. Number five is something called positive truth. Positive truth means to have um, something that is more than just by truth by, by negative. I'll give you an example. Prophecy would be an example. Like, how do I know that it's, that, that you're a right religion? So you have prophets in that religion, let's say. And that religion is able to predict the future and tell you what happens and it comes into fruition as it was predicted. It gives you basically proof that there is an attachment of a divine power uh, going on over here. The, um, another branch of this, which is not as strong, but still a little bit good, is um, evidence by explanation. So something happens, but then you give an explanation after the fact. So that's obviously not as great as a prophecy, but it still it gives a little bit of, of positive evidence. To give you um, an example in, in 
I guess in now day and age, astrology. Astrology, we have a very, very good understanding of astrology that we're able to predict when eclipses are going to happen with, with exact accuracy. So we're able to predict it. Astrology, that's very good positive evidence. On the other ch- side, earthquakes. Earthquakes, we cannot predict earthquakes. We can explain it based off the, of the, the plate tectonics and how they move in, under the ground. So we can explain the earthquakes, but we cannot predict it. And that is the difference. So we, we want to see a religion. We want to see something that has positive evidence. So those are the five things that we're going to plug into the religions. Some religion will just be done on one, and we don't even have to go through the entire five because we already refuted it by one. Make sense so far? Is that clear? Okay. So, the, um, now we're going to start with speaking with Buddhism. Buddhism, the reason why I started with Buddhism, first of all, I do have to put out an halakha, oh, thank you, I do have to put out an halakha that um, the Rambam says in Hilchot Avodah Zarah that idols, you're not allowed to mention their names. So, you're, if there's a certain, uh, the, the, the religion, we can mention the name, as long as it doesn't represent the actual idol, but an idol itself, you're not allowed to, you're not allowed to even mention their name. Because it says lotaskiu. So, some of the things that were mentioned, Buddhism, not so much Hinduism, there's going to be a lot of parts that I'm not going to be able to mention, and we'll, we'll mention it uh, by then. I, I have to ask, like that elephant? I don't want to say it now. Like yeah. Elephant thing. That's Hinduism. I can't, is that, is that yeah, you're not supposed to, yeah, you're not supposed to say the names. Yeah. yeah. Of course I know the name, but I yeah. can't say it now, just out of... Well, you shouldn't, yeah. Yeah, oh, I didn't know that. You're not allowed to say idol worship. Idols, particular idols, you're not allowed to say their names. Not even mention their names. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and you know, the, the halacha goes even deeper. You shouldn't even make other people mention their names. There's a, there's a yeah, yeah. Be like, oh, what was that idol? You know, like you can't do that. So, um, also that's evil and sadistic. But, um, okay, so let's begin with Buddhism. Buddhism, first of all, uh, Buddhism comes from the word buddhi, which means uh, to wake up. So it's sort of an enlightenment. It's a, a philosophy of, of awakening. The reason that I picked this one to be do first is, first of all, I wanted to do a, a class on Buddhism in general because, uh, surprisingly, not, not a lot of people know about this, but in America, Buddhism compromises the entire Buddhist you know, community. 20 to 30% of those are Jews. No. Jews go, are so much... And not only that, but there, there's actually a term... Is there, because of the, they go to the Far East, so yeah, but yeah. they usually don't go for religion when they go to Far East. They do for other things. The, yeah, but a lot of them end up like, they do. They do end up, unfortunately. The, um, but that's more Hinduism. But yeah, Buddhism also comes into play. They're both hand-in-hand hand over there. There's actually a term for Jewish Buddhist. It's called Jubu. Uh, J-U-B-U. Yeah. So, uh, and not only that, that many of the prominent Western Buddhist teachers are Jewish. So not only are the Buddhist people, even the people that are teaching them are Jewish. So, and we'll speak about it a little bit later, what attracted Jews so much into Buddhism. So this is one of the reasons why I wanted to put this one, one of the reasons I wanted to do in general a class on Buddhism, so we'll put this together uh, in this. Okay, so let's try to understand the way that we're going to go and, and uh, delve into refutation of these religions, if I may, is first of all, understand them give a little bit about their background, their philosophy, and then we'll be able to either tear them apart slowly or, you know, depending on, on the, the situation at hand. So, Buddhism, there is a, it's a very, very large religion. I want to say it's the fourth most populated religion. I feel like that's right. In 350 to 500 million followers. I want to say it's the, it's the third or fourth. I don't remember the, the, I don't remember where it holds in the polls. Um, but, the, the, so Buddhism is, is a very, very popular uh, religion, and there is three different variations, I guess, or different sects of Buddhism. There is one, the, the main one is Mahanya, which is a more of a polytheistic, uh, you know, branch of it. The other one is Theravada, which is an atheistic branch of it. And then we have the Vajrayana, which is basically like, like the Mahayarana, but it has more rituals, it has yoga incorporated in it, and all the different exercises and rituals involved in it. So, um, Buddhism by far dominates like the Western culture, like, you know, the Eastern culture, so all the, like, Confucianism, everything from the East that comes into the West, Buddhism is, is by far the dominant one that comes into and, and it is able to, to uh, encroach on, on the West territory. The, and in fact, in Australia, Australia, the Australia Beret of Statistics, the, they held that Buddhism is the fastest growing spiritual tradition in Australia in terms of percentage gain. They grew 79% from 1995 to 2001. 1996-2001, which is a tremendous amount of growth for a spiritual religion. So they were growing tremendous in, in that area. So what is the origins? How did it start uh, Buddhism? So there was a wealthy Eastern prince by the name of Siddhartha Gautama. And he lived about 500 BCE. So you're talking about two and a half thousand years ago. 
That's when, that's when he lived. He lived in, in, a, in a part of India, northern India. And what happened was his father was, was like a king, a ruler, a very high and powerful official. And he had a son. And uh, we'll call him Sid. Right? Little Sid. And I don't know if that's what we call him, but it's just easier than the Indian version. So Siddhartha goes, and and as he's growing up, the the you know back then they would very much participate in looking at the future, especially especially rulers. They want to know. They always want to know who is going to overtake them over power, which means who's going to be the next ruler after them, because then they have to know if it's going to be an invasion. Who do they have to worry about? But this particular ruler, his father, he wants to know what's going to be with his son. So he went over to this you know like spiritual dude, uh, soothsayer, who tells the future. And he paid the five dollars. He opened his pot. I don't know. What he so he goes and he says, uh, he tells, he tells the king, he says, your son is either going to be a very, very powerful king, maybe even an emperor, or he's going to be a spiritual leader. So the king didn't want his son to be a spiritual leader. He wanted him to continue in the footsteps of the family business, you know, and, and obviously rule that. So he decided that he is going to remove anything spiritual or anything that moves somebody to spirituality away from, from his upbringing. So what he did was, is that this king went, and um, he he didn't allow anybody who was he basically sheltered this child that he shouldn't see old people, sick people, death, or anybody that was that's devoted to spirituality. Nobody's allowed to see that. So he basically was confined. They had three palaces, and this this you know poor prince he was only able to go into three palaces, and that's it. He wasn't able to do anything anymore. The um, when he came to about sixteen years old, he got married, and uh, you know quite some time after that he started getting curious about the world. He's like, what's out there? Like, maybe there's something more out there. I want to see out there. So he goes to his father, and father says, fine, you want to see what's out there? Not a problem. And they arranged a parade. Now, the father made very certain that anybody who's going to be in the parade is not going to be sick, is not going to be old, there's not going to be any funeral processions, there's not going to be any spiritual people. Make sure that he, he sees only what he wants him to see. So, the, they start in the parade, and somehow, an old man happened to, like, stumble across the road. And the prince is like what's that creature? Like, what, wrinkly skin? What, what is all this stuff? So he got very curious and he started running after this old man. The old man saw him, he started running away. And the, while he was chasing this old man, he saw what Buddhist, Buddhism calls like four different sites, four troubling sites. He saw the old man, then he saw somebody who was severely ill, and then he saw a funeral in process. Now, before we get to the fourth one, he was with his friend, bodyguard, whatever, and he was like, you know, what's going on with this? I, I've never seen this before. What is all this, you know, things that I'm seeing for the first time? So he said, listen, you know, this is the way of life. This is how we all live. You know, you, you know, people get old, people get sick, and people die. And he was very troubled. He's like, what? He's like, you know, I don't know how they did this, but they must have sheltered him really well. He's like, what? People get old and sick and die? He's like, unbelievable. And then he saw the fourth side. The fourth side was, he saw this monk who removed any physical temptation, just completely in the spiritual thing, and he looked at his face, and it was so peaceful. And that was the four sights that he saw. So when he, uh, when he went back home, he was very troubled. And he decided that his goal in life is going to be to find the key to happiness. He says, there's so much suffering. There's so much terrible stuff in this world. So he says he has to figure out the solution to all this. So at the age of 29, he goes in the middle of the night, and he gives a kiss to his son, his wife, and he sneaks out of, out of, out of his, uh, um, you know, out of his palace and he goes out to the real world. He gives up all his worldly possessions and he starts following, you know, goes begging and, and starts, you know, trying to uncover all of the, uh, life's uh, great questions. So he started studying Hinduism, uh, but he was disappointed, didn't find any real answers there. Uh, he studied this for a few years. And after six years of, of going in through all these different religions and traditions and trying to figure out what is the answer to all his problems, he decided that he's going to sit under a tree, under a fig tree, and he's going to meditate over there until he gets all his answers you know, answered. He's going to meditate until he finds the right answers. So he went, according to their tradition, he went and he succeeded in a week-long meditation period. Uh, ask people if they can meditate for 45 minutes. Ask people if they can meditate for like three minutes. You know? So he was able to do a week-long. Pretty impressive. So... Well, there wasn't phones back then. He wasn't checking his uh, Twitter account. Okay, so... He goes and he, wedded, he meditates for a week long. And then after the week, it was like six days or something, uh, or a week. After a week, he wakes up, wakes up, whatever. He gets up, he's like, I got all the answers. That's it, he finished. He got all the, six years of like random studying, and a week long, he got all the answers. And that's when he became the Buddha. And so now he's, now he's the Buddha. For the next 45 years of his life, he went and he spent, you know, uh, you know giving off all his, uh, his knowledge, his information. So... Yeah, that's how Buddhism started. No, no, this is a thing. 
No, he that for, for the next forty five years he went around and be like, "Hey, you want to know how to get rid of suffering? Okay, all right, come follow me. You got to wear this yellow robe, uh, whatever." I'm saying it came up over um, over a period of time. But for the next forty five years, he went and preached this uh, this uh, um, this this new understanding, this new way of life, this new religion. He so, lived so long. Sorry. Yeah, he lived. According to, I mean, I don't know. I don't have his uh, medical records, but um, according to them, yeah. So. If we stop the story right there and we ask, not not over here if we can verify if it's true. Back then, can we verify that it was true? I don't know. Did he succeed in having a week-long meditation? Nobody knows. He went under a picture. Was there any eyewitnesses? Probably not. Uh, you know, like, but like, you know, like, yeah, it was in my backyard and he didn't move for like a week. You know, I kind of check on him. There's no, like, how do we know that? We don't even know. But let's go on and let's uh, indulge if we may. Uh, the Buddhism holds of something called uh, Four Noble Truths. And by the way, let me mention, there was no mention of any divine interaction over here. There was no mention that, like, he was meditating, and he was, like, you know, in his zone, and suddenly feels a tap on his shoulder. And he turns around, and no one's there. But he looks up, and there's an angel floating. And he's like, do you have an answer for all the, or do you have questions? And he'll be like, yeah, yeah, I do, actually. And, you know, it was, there was no interaction with divine. It was just like, he was in a trance, and he was like, oh, I got it. The answer is C to all the questions. So, he went, and he figured it out. How, and this is the, this is, this is how he went, and this is how he went and he started teaching. He said there are four noble truths. What are the noble truths? Number one is life always has suffering. Always has suffering. This is, you get introduced to Buddhism, it's number one is suffering. Life is all about suffering. Number two, what is the cause for suffering? That's the craving. When you crave something and you can't get it, then you suffer. So the, and this is by the way, if you ever realize, you'll get pictures, you see like Buddhism, Buddhist, you know, monks, they wear usually like yellow type robes. Why yellow robes? So back in the jungle where it originated, not well, near where it originated, not in the jungle, um, there, the leaves before they would fall off would either turn yellow, orange, or brown, and then it would, then that's how you know the leaves are about to fall. So, Yellow became their color because that is the idea of just letting go. Letting go of all your cravings, all your desires. You don't need it anymore. And that's the idea of, of uh, what part of the Four Noble Truths. So number one is suffering. Number two is the cause of suffering, which is cravings. Number three is how do we get rid of that suffering. So the way to get rid of that suffering is by eliminating the cravings of those desires. If you get rid of the desires, then you don't have suffering anymore. And in fact... The central aim of Buddhist teachings is to overcome suffering. Anything else that does not remove suffering is irrelevant. So there's like one main goal in that, in that religion is to remove suffering. And if you're able to go and you're able to remove the suffering, then you reach a path, something called nirvana. And this is nirvana, this is the enlightenment, this is where you ha- get rid of all of the suffering. The fourth of the noble truth is the path. How do you get to that? And then they go through the eight paths of, 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 of eightfold path of Buddhism, which we don't need to get into. Um, it's, it's basically practical moral guides and also the mental thought training for, for the, the, their correct path. So now, the, um, this, is, this is the fundamental teachings of, of Buddhism. Those are the four noble truths. The doctrine of Buddhism, so when it was written, it was written, by the way, so about the first century BCE is when it was written. You're talking about nothing was written on Buddhism for about a few hundred years until after he died. And that's when all of a sudden things started to get written past. Until then, it was only by, by word of mouth. The, um, the, so now, if, if we have that basic idea, basic overview of Bo- Buddhism, if you would ask a Buddhist, do you believe in God? Do you believe? So there's no mention of divine. And in fact, if, you believe, if they believe in God, their, their answer, first of all, the short answer is no. They do not believe in God. And according to the founder, he, he neither affirmed nor denied the existence of God, which we're going to have a huge problem with, and we'll speak about it momentarily. But um, if you ask him just in general, no God, and there's no soul. There's no immortal soul that, that's, uh, you know, that's uh, dealing with. There's consciousness and you know, transferring of the consciousness, but there's no actual uh, soul. The, the way that you know, this religion spread is as it grew, it, you know, there was other near, near neighboring countries that worshipped idolatry, or even his country itself. They worshipped different idolatries. So these were incorporated. When they came into Buddhism, they took along their idols with them, and they started doing it together. And this is how, because a big, um, you know, part of this was uh, Hinduism. And, they, and a big part of, of Hinduism, in Buddhism, is they worship also Hindu, uh, Hindu idols. I have um, a friend who is, uh, his name is Akshay, who actually helped me out over here, because he grew up in India, and he practiced Buddhism and Hinduism. And so, so he mentioned, but also like, like in his, you know, you know, upbringing, 
they would go to they, they, Buddhism itself involves a lot, a lot of Avodah Zarah. He brought me proofs and proofs and proofs on how what they do for Avodah Zarah. We'll see if we have time to delve into all of them. But there's definitely idolatry built into it. Now, according to the hardcore instruction manual of Buddhism, there's no God, there's no idolatries in them. And in fact, um, the you know according to the original thought of Buddhism is don't deal with gods. They're irrelevant. They can't help you. There's nothing to talk with that. Don't bother with divine intervention. It was sort of, it, not, this was already like, you know, even like pushing it even lower down than that already was. So, this is where it gets a little bit tricky. Because there is no divine power in Buddhism, a lot of Jews can get sucked into this. And this is one of the reasons that Jews get sucked into Buddhism is because they see this and be like, well, you know, it's idolatry. We can't do idolatry. No, no, no. We don't believe in God in here. Oh, so what, what is it? We practice meditation, we do all these things. So it makes it, it gives an opening to the Jewish people, uh, or anybody else for that matter, that they could go and get into the religion because they don't feel like they're cheating on their God. There's no other God in it. So this is one of the reasons also that, that Judaism, uh, that Jews unfortunately get attracted into this. Also another reason is Jewish people practice Judaism. They claim there's no spirituality in Judaism. Everything is just rituals and laws. I'm like, I don't know what, what religion you're practicing. It's probably the reform, conservative, or even modern, even modern Judaism, which I'm, I have a huge problem against, um, because it's, it's like, you're just, if you're doing something, you're doing something through the motions. You don't even know what you're doing. You expect to have any connection to something, that you're just going through the rituals, going through the motions, without having any, any feeling, any emotion, any interaction, any understanding of what the true Judaism is. So, unfortunately, they, they, these Jews who didn't have a true understanding of Judaism, didn't have a true practice of Judaism, felt that it was lacking spirituality. So look at this. Look at this spirituality in, in Buddhism. They go and they, they sit and they don't talk for like 10 years. You know, they do all the, um, you know, the, the, their aesthetic type of, of beliefs and things like that. So, the, uh, it, you know, and this is also where, where, you know, meditation comes in. I don't know. I, I don't know why people don't know. Meditation was... was First of all, Judaism came before Buddhism, and meditation is already in Judaism. I didn't, the, I, whatever, I guess it's not maybe popular or something it's like that. Not. So, yeah. So, the, that's number one. That's where we're up to number two reasons for, uh, for people to go into, um, for Jews to go into, into Buddhism. Another reason is there's no history with Jews and Buddhists. It wasn't like, you know, the Buddhists tried to go and destroy us and attack us and convert us. There was no history, so there's no, like, ill feeling. You know, for example, Christianity, we had the Crusades. Islam, we have currently have, you know, all the jihad, you know, against us. The, the, we have a lot of, a lot of uh, you know, conflict in there, but here there was no history, so it's a little bit easier. And finally, the Buddhism has an open invitation. If you want to be a Buddhist, it'd be like, you know, you come to a, a, you know, a Buddhist temple, let's say, you shouldn't. You go, somebody goes to a Buddhist temple and says, uh, you know, just browsing, you know, looking around the aisles and whatever, and be like, well, do you want to uh, maybe sit with one of our advisors or whatever they call them? And uh, they'll be like, no, 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 I can't. I'm, you know, I'm a Jew or I'm a Christian or I'm whatever. And they'll say, well, listen, you don't have to relieve your religion to be a Buddhist. You could practice Christianity, Judaism, Islam, whatever it is, and do Buddhism. There's nothing conflicting in it. You, and they claim you could be a good Jew, a good Christian, a good whatever, and practice Buddhism, which can be the furthest from, from truth uh, you know, involved in it. So for those reasons, Jews, unfortunately, get sucked into Buddhism um, and thinking that it's not a problem, it's not so much of an uh, issue, it's so much of a, of, of a problem. The, the problem that I want to deal with now is Buddhism claims like this. Buddhism claims that they neither affirm nor deny the existence of other uh, of, of God. So Rabbi Kiva Tatz, he wrote a book. Um, it's called uh, the Letters to a Buddhist Jew or something like that. Letters to Buddhism. It was a book. It was it was a it was a correspondence between him and a and a Buddhist a Buddhist Jew. So very interesting. If you want to if you want to learn more about this, it's a, he, he's a great author, great writer, great speaker. Um, Rabbi Kiva Tatz. So. He writes like this. He writes in, the, in his uh, correspondence between this uh, Jew and this, this Jewish Buddhist and himself. He says, "What does this mean that they don't uh, they don't deny the existence of God? Like, what does that mean? You don't deny that existence. If God, if if you mean that God exists and you're not interested in investigating what God says, then you're just crazy. Like, like you're just outright foolish. You know, just crazy. If." God doesn't exist, then what do you mean deny? Either yes or no. It's just like sort of like, I don't want to touch it. You know, like, you know, hot, cool, I, I don't know, I, whatever. Just leave me alone. It makes absolutely uh, no, no logical sense to, to either pursue it or don't pursue it at all and deny the, the entire existence. The problem that, that leads on to this is that 
where do you deal with your morality? So every religion has a moral code. And Buddhism is all different. We're not going to get into it. They have, they have different paths. Of, there's, there's different five basics of, of morality. But what is their power of authority to say, like, this is, what, this is what morality is? Who gave you the permission? I'll give you an example. It's so easy to refute anything when you don't have a divine power. So one of the things that they say is, is, is like this. How do you know if you're doing something, if it's right or wrong? So they have a blanket uh, formula. You plug in this formula, you know if it's right or wrong. What is this formula? The formula is based off three things. Number one, what is your intention? Is your intention good or is your intention bad? Number two, what is the effect that this action will be on yourself? Number three is what is the effect that this action will be on somebody else? If those things will be positive, then you know it's a good thing to do. If it's negative, then you know it's a negative thing to do. I was like, that, I have huge problems with that. I'm like, I'll give you an example. Let's say there is a multi-billionaire. And this multi-billionaire has tons of cash just lying around everywhere. And you decide you want to be Robin Hood. You want to steal from the rich and give to the poor. That's what Robin Hood does, right? I don't know why we teach this to children. I, 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 I seriously do not. When you open Goldilocks and the three bears, I'm going to go off on a tangent right now. I, you know, like, if you see a beer house, you don't run. Don't taste their food and sleep in their beds. You know, like, you know, Robin Hood, steal from the, you know, from the, from the rich and give to the poor. And everybody's, you know, uh, go befriend a tiger and a beer, for, you know, for, you know, I did, these things like, this is what you're teaching your children. This is what, you know, it's like, okay. Anyways, I can go on. Living in, under the sea, you know. Yeah, teach kids, go breathe under the sea. And maybe that, uh, whatever. Okay, move on. So, the, let's say, moving back to our, to our situation, you're, uh, you're going here, you want to be Robin Hood. There's a multi-billionaire, you see $1,000 cash lying over there. Now, you want to take that $1,000 and you want to give it to a poor person. Now, you don't want to steal, so you're going to borrow without asking. Um, air quotes. So, you're, because stealing is obviously bad. So, you're just going to borrow, pay back, you know, one day. One day. You know, we'll pay back just one day. You take this, you take the, you take this $1,000 and you give it. Now, let's break down according to Busan. Was your intention? It's a good intention. It's a pretty good intention, right? You gave all the money. You didn't even take 10% for yourself. There's no fine to say. You just gave everything. Did any, did the person suffer from, the, 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 what was your, what, so the, what was your effect on you? And you was indifferent, whatever, it didn't matter, it was, you did a good deal. What about your effect, the effect of your action on others? Well, for the poor person, he got a thousand dollars, so that was, you know, thumbs up for him. For the rich person, he's a multi-billionaire, it's not gonna, he's not even know that it's gone. He's not even gonna realize that it's gone, so it's gonna be zero effect on him. So according to the Buddhism theory, right, and again, this is not a great example because technically you could say it's stealing and Buddhism say don't steal, but you can see where I'm going with this, that the idea is flawed. If you're basing off you know, a formula and this formula is based off human logic, then you're done. What, what, you know, I, I could easily manipulate that formula and change it and see like everyone's going to be happy because if he finds out that I really gave charity from the money, he will be happy that I took the money for him. And there you go. Everybody's happy. I did a great deed. And according to Judaism, no, you just stole you would you, you just an act of thievery. The um, another problem that we have with Buddhism is that there's a lot of bowing in Buddhism. This is everyone's just bows, 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 bows down to this. So when you go to a Buddhist and be like, if you don't practice any worship of a god, why do you always bow down to, to you know to the Buddha? And they have they have statues of Buddha in all their temples. In fact, if you go to a Buddhist house, they have t- pictures and statues and little uh, shrines, or, not shrines or whatever it's called, little uh, whatever mahogany wooden Buddha things and. Um, so you have over there, they even ask. <laughs> I remember when I was, when I was <laughs> looking into this, they were like, one of the questions was, was why is Buddha always fat? You know, like, like happy person. Which, which bothers me also, because right? like, he had to give up everything. I'm like, and he had to, he went around begging. Who gave him so much food for free that he was able to, uh, you know, become, get that nice punchiness? So, good healthy uh, thing. <laughs> well, not in the face, that's in the stomach. He was, but he ran away from everything. Yeah, yeah, of course. He wasn't a Buddhist in his friend. It wasn't like as people were feeding him peeled strawberries, he was like, no, no, you know, <laughs> meditating. It was, he was doing it in the forest or whatever, you know. So the, the, the question is, what's up with the bowing? If it's not, what's up with the bowing? So Buddhism explains, bowing is not, we're not worshiping. We're sort of like, when you go and when you show respect for somebody, a parent walks in, a teacher walks in, you stand up. That shows respect. We, according to Buddhism, they bow to show respect. So, Rabbi Kiva attacks 
Berkiva Tats goes and, and he breaks this down. He says, first of all, bowing in general is very, very problematic in Allah. And Allah bowing in general because bowing is represented by Abu Dazal. Obviously, you know, bowing to, to like royalty and things like that is a little bit different in regards to humans. But bowing to a statue, all of a sudden there's a blanket issue on, 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 uh, on uh, bowing. The, and then he goes on to explain Abu Dazal. How do you understand Abu Dazal? You think about idolatry. The Torah commands us, do not serve idols. Why? Like what? Like who in the right mind will take a piece of wood and a knife and chisel out like a face, put it on the table, and start bowing to it and praying to it? I'm like, that should not be, the Torah should say, don't be crazy. Don't be gullible. Don't, don't observe idols. Who is idiotic enough to paint something and be like, this is a god. This is a higher power. This is what brought me into this world. That's idiotic. That's crazy. But yet, the Torah does go and it gives, it gives us a prohibition. Do not serve idols. Which means is there must be something very real about this. There must be something much more deeper than just bowing down into just, just, uh, you know, a piece of wood. So, the, um, to understand this, we have to understand astrology. How do we, how does astrology work? The, and I'm talking about more ancient astrology. Ancient astrology, they were able to look at the stars and they were able to tell you what will happen in the future. Sort of predict the future. Now, how are they able to do that? So, to understand this, you understand, if it's not predicting the future, because that's prophecy. They weren't predicting the future. They weren't telling you what the future was. But it was, ra- it was rather, it was reading the present really, really well. Now, to understand it like this, imagine you, you're, what is it called? So, a botanist? Or someone who's really into flowers, uh, fruits and vegetables and seeds, whatever. Make believe we know that. Um, yeah. So um, you show this, this this specialist botanist. Yeah, that's what I, what I say. Botanist. I pronounce it wrong. Okay. So you go and you show this botanist a a, a you know a seeds, and it'd be like, if I put these seeds in the ground, what's going to come? I'd be like, well, this is an apple seed, this is an orange seed, and this is you know mint. I don't know if it has seeds, but whatever. Uh, you know, this is a uh, apple and orange. So be like, wow, are you a prophet? How did you know? Be like, no, because I know this is an apple seed and this is, uh, you know, I, I just know because I know. The same thing, the astrologers, they were able to read the stars. The way that it worked was in astrology is there is energy, if we could call it energy, that comes in from the spiritual realm into the physical world. And it passes through the astrology, the astrological signs. So when you're reading the, astro- the you know, the stars, you're not predicting the future. You're saying, okay, I see this is the energy that's coming. This is the energy that's coming. And you're able to understand the present just like this, the someone who knows about seeds is able to understand uh, um, what's going to come out from those seeds when it gets planted. So, and this is really how we understand, you know, the, in the deeper reality, we're all, there's all one. In the heavenly realm, it's all part of one. Right, it's all there's all oneness. When it gets into this world, it splits up and it get and it differentiates into different beings, different things, different. Uh, uh, everything is just different. So, the the question is: is where does it separate? Where does it go from that oneness to the to the separation? And the answer is that's that's in the zodiac realm. In the zodiac realm is where things divide and they separate into their their separate uh, uh, energies. Uh, think of it like this: you have a water basin and you have you drill a bunch of holes in this water basin and you pour water to fill it up. Now, as the water is dripping out, it's, it's pouring out of different holes. But is it different water? It, it's, it all stems from the same source. So similar to the same idea, that's how you can understand the zodiac and how do you stand astrology and how do you stand, uh, you know, how they could uh, predict the, the future. What is idolatry? So idolatry is dealing with those that middle, that middle ground, where things separate. If they're able to manipulate something or go into something, it's dealing with that. Think of it this way. Rabbi Kiva Tats explains like this. He says, imagine someone's going into a store and he wants to buy something. And the item is, let's say, $1,000. He doesn't have $1,000. He has $100. Because he didn't steal the guy from Buddha Line. But he only has $100. And he goes and he goes, looks around and there's nobody around except the sales uh, clerk. And he says, listen, he says, I'll slip you this 100 Give me that, uh, that you know, that piece of uh, that that merchandise. That is what idolatry is. Idolatry is is not dealing with the owner of the store, dealing with that. that I just want to get what I want to get. However, I get to it, I'll buy from you whatever, so I could you know cut corners and whatever I could get to whatever I get to my desire. That is I, I, idolatry, and this is why idolatry has rituals. There's magic involved. There's a usage of demons in the ancient uh, you know idolatries. They incorporate all these different rituals. Why? Because it's getting what I want. If a demon is going to get me what I want, if this magic is going to get me what I want, they incorporate it into the idolatry, and that's how they, they get it. So it's a real thing. It's not something that's fake. It's a real thing, but the, the worship, the goal, I guess, of worship is very, very different. In a true service of Judaism, God is everything. That is the center. That is the focus. In idolatry, I am everything. 
I am the focus. How do I get what I want to get? The, uh, you know, for, for idolatry is what can they, these idols do for me? For God is what can I do? So you understand that there's a very big fundamental difference between um, you know, the, the serving of idols, not, not just the, the worship itself, but actually the underlining reasoning behind it. The, and now when we plug that information into Buddhism, let's see where it comes down. First of all, it's interesting. This, you know, the, the Buddhist, the, the, or, the originator of Buddhism, in the middle of the night, when he was 29 years old, he wakes up, or he didn't go to sleep, he goes and he kisses his little child and his wife and he leaves. Why? Because he has suffering and he has to deal with his suffering. What about the fact that his wife's not going to have a husband? What about the fact that his son is now not going to have a father? What about their suffering? No, no, no. It's about my suffering. I have to figure out my answer to my... Cl- I have to answer the questions of my, of my problems. The, when, it's all about me. And this is why we have the Gemara and Shabbat, page 105b, says that if someone gets angry, it's as if he worshipped Abu Dazah. It's as if he worshipped idolatry. And the question is... Why? Like, why does anger have to do this? We get different answers previously, but another fundamental reason is when you're getting angry, everything is only about me. How could you do this to me? I am angry because how could, how is it possible? How do you, do you know who I am? You get angry because you feel that, that, that someone wronged you. Who are you? Why are you complaining? Because you're putting yourself on such a high pedestal, that's like you're worshipping yourself. You're worshipping yourself. The same idea, it's that egocentric viewpoint, and that is the, cent- the, the, that is the crux of idolatry. It's all about the ego. It's all about me. It's all about what I can get, what I want. So now, if all in all, it's really the, the entire Buddhism, there's no God, there's no divinity, there's no nothing. So it is really fitting a certain pasuk, that, part of that what we say in Aleinu Lushabeach. We say in Aleinu Shabbach, They go and they bow down to nothingness, to emptiness. And they, they pray to a God that's not going to answer them. You know why? Because they're, they're really, this is a, such a true thing. They're praying to something that they know is not divine, that they know is not powerful. And, and by the way, there is what the, um, you know, my friend from, uh, from India mentioned. He says they, there are some things that they actually pray to the actual Buddha. They actually turn it into an actual level. They actually pray to the actual idol worship. It's nothing, and they know it's nothing, and that's why they're praying to something. Is what the pasuk says, and there is no answer. So, the oh, we're almost finished. A few more minutes will be done. The besides the fact that when Buddhism started, it was also through Hinduism. Did I say this already? They incorporate a lot of idols. Okay, I'm not sure where we're going on over here. Okay, so, but there's also something very interesting that Buddha is often believed to be the ninth and latest. Incarnation, reincarnation of a certain idol. That I can't say the name, but a certain Abu Dazra, he is a he is an incarnation of, of that idol. So now we have to uh, now now let's see if we can refute this. And this is one of the easiest religions to refute. Why? Because the question is the first thing that we said was this a divine? Is this a divine religion? Is this a religion given by God? And the answer is no. Even according to Buddhism, no. Was Buddha God? No. Was he a messenger of God? No. Was he a son of God? No. He was nothing related to, nothing to do with God, nothing to, no divine thing. So that's it. it the, the question is, is done. What am I going to follow a man-made religion? Oh, but it's a peaceful way of life. I'll meditate myself. I don't need to go and bow down to a Buddha and wear a yellow robe and give up all of life's, you know, great, you know, things that they could have just because of, you know, of your philosophy that you have. And in fact, the, um, you know, the, the idea about it is, is, you know, Buddhism claims that this is how it's going to get you to happiness. Who says? Maybe your happiness. If you're telling me that a man came up and says this is the way to happiness, happiness is subjective. You say that that is your happiness. Happiness is starving yourself, sitting under a tree, and meditating for six hours. I say it's eating a steak while, you know, listening to Shuatua. That is happiness. Like, what makes your happiness right over mine? You're not a divine being to tell me that this is the right happiness. It's your own personal experience. Very nice. I don't agree with you. That is not the way to happiness. In fact, I think there's a different way to have it. Some people say there's certain medications that lead to happiness. There's some people have other d- different viewpoints of it. So who are you to say that this is the only path to happiness? The, the, um, and this is why, this, this is actually why a lot of uh, scholars don't like when Buddhism is called religion, because it's not a religion. It, it's not psychological therapy, you can call it. I don't know. You know, it's a long therapy session for your lifetime. It, I don't know, more than that, what is it? So, Buddhism doesn't offer anything. It doesn't offer you a life purpose. It, it, it does give you a life purpose, but, you know, get rid of suffering, get into nirvana, get rid of cycle. It, all useless uh, information. Not, based off what? Based off some guy who meditated under a tree. So, 
Let's, let's see how this compares to Judaism. Can this offer? So we refuted it. This is an easy one to refute, not to find nothing. But let's see, is it something, is there something in, in, in Buddhism that Judaism doesn't have? The Buddhism goes and says part of the Four Noble Truth is, the third one is to end all, all suffering, is to remove all cravings, all desires. Only then can we begin to live fully. So um, we know that, first of all, this is not something new to Judaism. The, um, we know in Pirkei Avot, Rabbi Yaakov Omer, this world is compared to a hallway, which means is there's no point in time and dealing and with with the hallway. You want to wait for the for the magnificent hall that's in the in the next world. So if you're dealing with all the unnecessary stuff in life, you're wasting your time. You're decorating the hallway. Meanwhile, you should be decorating the you, you know your palace. The um, you know so so the idea is is that. Buddhism says to get rid of suffering you have to remove from all your temptations. Judaism says, yeah, you shouldn't go after crazy desires, but at the same point, there's no reason to run after run away from all 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 temptations, all desires that you have. What happens if you have a desire to do good? What happens if you have a desire to have children, desire to get married, desire to to uh, I don't know, build a, a you know, you have a good there's good desires, not just bad desires. Buddhism teaches the way of life is to run away from the world. You run away, put yourself in a monk, in a, in a mountain, under a tree, and that's how you're going to become happy. Judaism teaches, no, use this world to become happy. You're going to, you, everything that can be done can be done in a kosher way. Marriage, you know, going eating, any, any possible different enjoyment and pleasure that you have in life can be done in a kosher way. Not only are you going to be happy in this world, but you're going to be happy also in the next world. So while this is such a fundamental difference, so I can't understand why anybody would be attracted to, to Buddhism, which runs away from everything, where Jude- to just get happiness, Judaism says, no, 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 we can get happiness, follow the Torah, follow the ways of the way that God, a divine power, went and told you how to get happy while living in this world. While the way that you're supposed to do, you're supposed to make bachot, you're supposed to eat things, you're not supposed to fast all day, you're not supposed to go and live a life just as secluded, you're supposed to live in this world. I want to finish off with one, uh, one just, I found this so, so fascinating. Um, so, Buddhism, one of the main fund- fundamentals of it is meditation. What is the Pali, Pali is the native Indian language that used, was used, what is the Pali term for, for, for meditation? Listen to this, behavana. The word is behavana. I'm like, I couldn't make it more similar to Bikavana. Bikavana means to have concentration. What is, what is meditation? Meditation, generally when you practice, there's different variations of meditation. Maybe one day we'll do a meditation class. Um, and in fact, by the way, Judaism does speak a lot about meditation. Rabbi Arya Kaplan wrote three books on meditation in English. Uh, meditation on the Bible, Meditation on Kabbalah, and Practical Meditation Guide. And there is different, so the meditation is not new to Judaism. It, there's, there's very much incorporated in Judaism. Um, but one of the, the ideas of meditation is to sort of block out everything, every external influence. And that's why, you know, there's like breathing, breathe in, breathe out. It's not like you're going to forget and that's why you need to like focus on your breathing. The purpose is that when you concentrate on your breathing, you're blocking out everything else. And that is the idea of, the, one of the main ideas of meditation is to remove yourself or to focus on just one thing. Focusing on one thing is also considered meditation. That's why they have certain meditation that you look at an object or, or you're meditating on a certain mantra. You're repeating a verse again and again and again. You're, you're not putting it blank, but you're Focusing everything on one particular thing. What is kavana? What is kavana when you when you pray? Says the Rambam in Moa Nevuchim. He says shetifne machshavascha mikol davar. You're going to go and you remove yourself, remove your thoughts from everything else except for what you're praying right now. Exactly what meditation is. Bekavana means to go and focus only on what you're dealing with right now. You're learning, concentrate on what you're learning. You're praying, concentrate on the words that you're saying. Know what you're saying. If you realize, we pray three times a day. Shmona Esra, they say three times a day, same things. Why? Why do we change it up? Because when you meditate, what is a meditation? It is a mantra. You say the same thing again and again and again and again. There's so many mantras. There was once, uh, um, uh, you know, this, this Israeli went to uh, Dalai Lama or whatever, one other Buddhist, and he's like, you know, he's like, from obviously a Jewish background, he says, you know, I want to meditate, give me a mantra. And he would not give him a mantra. And he kept on saying, give me a mantra, give me a mantra, give me a mantra. He says, I don't know what you want from me. You're a Jewish person, your mantra should be Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. He says, well, what are you asking me what your mantra? That's yours to be your mantra, your mantra. So, well, it could be, he said. Yitzhak Fanger was, he has a phenomenal story. You speak Hebrew? You have to, you heard his story? Unbelievable. So he, I think he did say the story. He did. Yeah, yeah, he did say the story. Yeah, so he, because he has this bringing, he wasn't doing uh, Buddhism, he was doing something else, and I forgot what it was. Um, 
he was doing something else, and he was like a master in it. He was like training yoga? people. In it. it wasn't yoga. It was like some sort of like healing something. Oh, right, yeah, Reiki, Reiki. Thank you, Reiki. Yeah, that's what it was. So, yeah, he's he's a phenomenal speaker. He's he's very funny. Um, so he yeah. So 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 in any case, when you look at um, that was my train of thought. When you look at when you look at Buddhism in general, Buddhism has nothing to offer. Not only has nothing to offer, Judaism. It has everything that Buddhism has, everything real about Buddhism has to offer, and that's only a fraction of the gold of what's in Judaism. The, and really, when you go into any, everything else, when you really delve into it, it's all Abu Dazarah. You think about it that it's not. Bottom line is, it's all based off Abu Dazarah concepts. It's idolatry. Not only is it a fake religion, you're not allowed to even go into it. You're not allowed to even practice it. it there's a, and maybe next week, because it's getting late, we'll speak about Hinduism. We'll incorporate, we'll, we'll figure out yoga. yoga. Are you halakhically allowed to do yoga? How, how can you do yoga? So, well, yeah, there's, there's different things in, in, in yoga. So, Bizarre Hashem, next week we'll, we'll deal with that and speak about, remind me next week, or we'll, we'll present that inside um, also on how to deal with yoga and all these different things. But the bottom line, Buddhism, 100% fake, 100%. There's no even, how I mean, there's no even thought process that it'll be real. And number two, not only it's fake, you're not allowed to even delve in, you're not allowed to touch it because it's 100% Abu Dazara, it's idol worship, and you have to stay very, very far away from it. Any questions? Um, yeah, um, I I don't I don't remember the speech clearly, but I remember someone saying that when um, the prophets used to like get a prophecy, they'd be meditating. Yeah, depending on well, meditating they would be in. Let's say some of them would be in a in a, in a it's a different it's a different state of mind. Right. Uh, depending on the level of the prophet, it could be somehow of a more of a dreamy like type of state, but a very lucid. But it wasn't. But it's while you're awake, type of really. Maybe we'll speak about that. I'm thinking about doing maybe after we finish the series, going through the 13 principles of faith, which speaks about prophecy. So maybe we'll do that as the next series. I'm thinking about it. But we'll see. Okay. So we'll get into like a prophecy. Yeah. In order to be considered a religion, it has to be divine based. In order, oh, you're talking about to the scholars, or you're talking about it? No. Uh, so, but, but yeah, but they call it a religion. <clears throat> it, they shouldn't. They should call. I it's just to get rid of suffering. Yeah. Uh, well, it's it's get the main focus of Buddhism is to get rid of suffering. And how they get rid of suffering is they have they have the four noble truths, and then how they get to it, they have the eightfold path of Buddhism, and how you know be truthful and have the right thoughts, and it's just like it's exotic. It's exotic. It's not over here. It's exotic. The bottom line is all these exotic Abu they have nothing to offer. They have nothing to offer. They're all the same Abu Dazara. That people nowadays are lacking a lot of spirituality because it's all about, you know, the phone and what he has, what she has, what I don't have, and, you know, whatever. You mean the ego. Right. You, yeah. And, and, and Buddhism, you know, you sit there and you get rid of all that and you're hum and whatever. Right, right. So that's so, what people want to be. I guess so. People, life. right. People that get really stressed in the everyday life and they just run away from it. If only they would realize Shabbat is also like that. Okay. You know, you step, if okay. there's so many, there's so many things in Judaism that just knocks Buddhism out of the ball. Like, like it's just like Buddhism, you know, like, you know, it's like nothing. It's like it, there's so much more beauty in, in, in Judaism. Running away from the stresses, dealing with the stresses, emunah. You want to deal with suffering, emunah. Everything that happens is for the best. <clears throat> so much more powerful than running away. The idea is a very, very important when you're dealing with coping mechanisms. When you run away from your problems, you are not going to be successful. It's just going to come back stronger the next time. You have to go and you have to deal with the issues. Buddhism teaches you to run away with it. Judaism teaches you to, to you know to deal with it. Like run away from reality. Yeah, run away. Exactly. Thank you. Exactly. Any other questions? Yeah. Um. Um. Is Buddha not an idol? Like, so according to the Buddhist teachings, the fundamental teachings, they say no. But there are many people that do bow down and worship that idol. So technically, does it count as an idol? What's that? What's that one thing that has a hat and looks like Buddha? Um, when I was in Thailand, and like I wouldn't go into the temples, but you can see like the like, they are Buddhas. Like so they have so lot, in Thailand also, if I'm not mistaken, they also uh, incorporate a lot of um, Hindu Hindu uh, into the well. If not that, they also incorporate a lot of different Abu Dazara in in those. So. I'll give you an example. So the guy Akashay, right, from, from India, he was telling me, he says that when people go and they worship, there was Buddhist temples and Hindu temples. And people would just go from one temple to another. It wasn't like, what are you, a Buddhist or a Hindu? And I'm like, no, I do both. 
You know, like we just do everything. They so it, it got it's like it's like a challenge, a little bit of a mix that they that they get into it. So they, yeah, you know, yeah, these these temples, you're not allowed to go into it because most, it, you know, it's, first of all, even if they just even if it's just an atheistic temple from like Buddhism and nothing else, it's still problematic. You're not allowed to go into these things. You're not allowed to stay into these things. It's uh, very very problematic in there. They have, and if you if you ever there there are pictures and idols all, like all over the place in these temples. Not just Buddhism. They have other other things in there. As well, some of them might only have Buddha, but generally they have a lot of us. This is, by the way, you ever realize when you have a Vodazara, they're all forms of humans. Yeah. Why? Why only humans? Because, or yeah, or half animal or something like that. But why always in a form of human? Because it's all about me. I'm trying to free. It's all a self worship. The basic crux of it is just all about me. That's why they put everything is is centered around that. Um, didn't like Hashem get rid of like ideology, like the worship part of it? Like, so the Sanhedrin yeah, removed the temptation for it. So, okay. there is still, there still exists today. Again, you don't have the magic that you, you don't have the demon. There's a lot of spiritual powers that are not in, not, I shouldn't say not in existence, but not in power as they used to be. So, they lost the flavor in it, like, you know, that they, that they once would have had. But back then, idolatry was a very, very big desire. Very, very big right. desire. It's like one of the, mm-hmm. um, also, um, why, why does like Hashem like allow astrology to kind of, give us that power why is like astrology so why do people so so knowing the future isn't that like a form of like worship and whatever and like why do people have that need like first, why does he make it you mean like, why she was like kind of take, taken away or whatever I don't know first of all now first of all nowadays astrology how many people you know can read the stars and be like yeah Trump's gonna win well well Not Trump won but, but like if any like, who do you know? I mean, some people say they can't, but, like, you know, there are people that make prophecies all the time, and then they make prophecies again, and they're, like, always wrong. <laughs> like, like you're really good at being wrong. Even 50-50, they're somehow wrong. So, like, you know, why was there a power to begin with? The same idea why we have idolatry, why we have magic. I'm not idolatry, magic, all these things. Everything was done, zelu Everything was done so there should be a balance. <clears throat> because there was such a strong spirituality, it has to be a balance. Well, maybe this is not true. Maybe he's not a prophet. Maybe he knows how to just read the stars. Maybe that's how he knows the future. So everything has to be an equal balance to, to make sure that there's free will by every, any given point in time. And that's why Rabbi Kamenetsky, if I'm not mistaken, um, I believe, goes on Yeah, he goes on to explain that that's why you don't see all these powers today. Demons you don't see so powerful. Magic you don't see so powerful. Because <clears throat> when was it powerful? When we had prophets. That's when you need to have magic. That's when you need to have batko. That's when you need to have, that's when you need to have demons involved in there because... Then when something spiritual happens, you'd be like, well, is it God? Or maybe it was, you know, demons, magic, something else. Gives you free will, more free will as, as to amount. Now that that's gone, so that's also, now we don't have the babka, we don't have prophecy, we don't have all these things, that also goes on. I speak about this in uh, the demon class. I, I can't remember, I don't know why, but I can't remember it. Like, I don't know, whatever. Okay. Um, oh, can you show me the name of the idol that he was being coordinated? Yes. Okay, good. All right, that's it. <laughs> that's it. That's the only thing? For now. Okay, no more questions? Off-camera questions? Okay. All right. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.